Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Total authority. President Trump argues he controls states. The New York governor tells CNN he's not king. Bad debts. J.P. Morgan and Wells Fargo prepare for a consumer cash crunch and a cyber warning. Global healthcare systems coming under attack. It's Tuesday. Let's make a move. Welcome once again to First Move. Great to have you with us as always. We've seen plenty of history being made since the start of the coronavirus outbreak and our global attempts to fight it. We've also seen some pretty unprecedented moves in financial markets too, whether it's central banks, but also in an increasing jobs crisis around the world too. But what we haven't heard yet is the damage being wrought on some of the biggest companies in the world, their views on restarting global economies too. Well, that changes today with the start of U.S. earnings season. Financial giants J.P. Morgan and Wells Fargo have been up first. Both companies announcing that they're setting aside billions of dollars to cover for potential losses on things like loans, mortgages and credit cards, even as we've seen their trading revenues soaring. That's certainly the case for J.P. Morgan and for Wells Fargo. All the details on what we're seeing next. U.S. futures, meanwhile, are holding on to solid gains. Tech, the tech sector, is outperforming. To be specific, stay-at-home tech stocks like Amazon, Netflix, Zoom, and medical teleconferencing company Teladoc, which all soared on Monday. Netflix, in fact, hit a 52-week high. What about what we're seeing in Europe? Well, that picture is mixed. Also in Asia, stocks closed higher, as you can see across the board, encouraging economic numbers from China, I think helping what we saw in the Asia session. Exports and imports in China falling far less than expected. That's good news on the economic front, but at the same time, it's also early days and It still comes amid some dire predictions from the International Monetary Fund about the growth outlook from around the world. You know my views. More support is needed, particularly for the most vulnerable in society all around the world. Now, part of that conversation centers on getting economies back to work safely in Europe. The focus remains on easing the lockdown restrictions in places like Italy and Austria, while here in the United States, the discussion has been perhaps a little bit more contentious. Let's get to the drivers and bring you up to speed. Estates in the United States on the east and the west coast come together to form regional packs. And in a couple of hours' time, California is expected to release plans to ease restrictions too. And what though sounded like an implicit warning to President Trump, California Governor Gavin Newsom says the west coast governor's decision will be driven by facts and science. The president, however, says his authority is total. He says that means he has the power to lift the restrictions that the governors themselves have imposed. 
I'm going to put it very simply. The President of the United States has the authority to do what the President has the authority to do, which is very powerful. The President of the United States calls the shots. If we weren't here for the states, you would have had a problem in this country like you've never seen before. We were here to back them up, and we back it. We've more than backed them up. We did a job that nobody ever thought was possible. It's a decision for the President of the United States. Now, with that being said, we're going to work with the states because it's very important. Well, if some states refuse to open, I would be. I would like to see that person run for election. Uh, they're going to open. They're going to all open. Well, the governor of New York, Andrew Cuomo, was on CNN earlier today, and he says the Constitution makes it pretty clear who's calling the shots. The federal government does not have absolute power. This is the exact opposite that the president said. Uh, it says that would be a king. We would have had King George Washington, and we didn't have King George Washington, and we don't have King Trump. We have President Trump. Uh, and remember, the colonies created the federal government. The states created the federal government, not the other way around. We have the Tenth Amendment that is explicit. Certain responsibilities are state responsibilities. Health, welfare, quarantine, those are health responsibilities. Yeah. So the president should not even think of going there. Uh, that would be divisive and political and it would be totally contrary to everything we've been trying to do by working in a cooperative fashion. The question is, what is the plan? Well, later today, White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows is expected to head up a newly formed economic working group to help come up with a plan to reopen the country. The president's daughter, Ivanka Trump, also expected to play a role too. Greg Vallier is chief U.S. policy strategist at AGF Investments, and he joins us now. Greg, great to have you with us and glad to know you're, you're keeping well. Let's talk about the first part of, of that conversation first. How much authority does the president have to coordinate, let's say at least, with the individual heads of state here particularly since he was the one that let them decide whether they were locking down or ordering stay-at-home um, orders in the first place. Well, you make a very good point. Good morning, Julia. Uh, I think any first-year law student would, uh, would know that the Tenth Amendment uh, grants states certain powers. Trump, in the ultimate irony a couple of weeks ago, refused to order the Florida governor to shut down Florida, citing constitutional reasons. And now he's, now he's saying the exact opposite. This makes absolutely no sense, and it further inflames the situation when people should be focusing on the victims of this virus rather than this bizarre uh, debate about presidential powers. Yeah, protecting lives and, and protecting jobs. It's good to hear that this economic working group is being formulated. The expectation is that will include business leaders as well from across the country. Greg, surely these business leaders are, are not going to say anything other than we need more stringent testing in order to safely bring back workers back into the workplace. Yes, I think there's two things that they'll have to tell the president, you know, and, and the other one, you mentioned the first, the other one is simply going to be they need more assistance. And inexplicably, Congress has uh, derailed. Uh, they've gridlocked on any new assistance for uh, business, small business, state and local government. And it doesn't look like we're going to get a deal anytime soon. I mean, that's part of the challenge. It's not just about pumping money to small businesses, which is the lifeblood. It's also, to your point, the states that need more money, the healthcare sectors around the country also need more money at this stage. How safe do you think Anthony Fauci, Dr. Anthony Fauci, is in his job after what we saw 
from that press conference last night, too? Well, last night was so bizarre, but I do think that the president knows he can't fire Dr. Fauci right now. The president's polling numbers have dropped dramatically. In fact, the Rasmussen poll, which is his favorite, now shows Trump with a 56% disapproval level. It's gone way up. So I think Trump can't afford politically to fire Fauci. To me, the more interesting angle, Julia, is that at some point later this spring, Fauci may decide he's had enough. And if there's a real conflict between the scientists and the president, Fauci might leave rather than get pushed out. I mean, he's become a figurehead, I think, for Americans desperate for information, trying to understand what progress is being made on the health front. Greg, what's your sense of timing in terms of what you're seeing playing out in the economy? Because what we can't get away from is the economic cost of, of the course. measures that are being taken here. Well, with, with, with the caveat, as Fauci often says, that the mm. virus dictates what's going to happen, you know, I would say some states, uh, Texas, maybe Florida, could open in, up in early May. Other states may wait until the end of May or well into June. But it, it's, it's coming. It's a very, very difficult decision. And I think the great fear for the country, for the markets, for all of us, is a second wave. And no one can predict whether there'll be a second wave. But we're going to find out because I think some states will be open in two and a half weeks. Yeah, we have to continue to watch what the rest of the world is doing, I think, and learn some lessons there, which we will be discussing later in the show. Greg Vallier, great to have you with us, uh, Chief U.S. Policy Strategist at AGF Investments. Now, clearly, the economic impact very much at the heart of what we're hearing in earnings season, kicking off, as I mentioned, with reports from some of the big U.S. banks this week. J.P. Morgan Chase says its first quarter profit dropped nearly 70% from a year ago, whilst Fargo also missed profit and revenue expectations. Claire Sebastian has all the details. Claire, I, I said earlier on our, our programming, we've been operating in a snowstorm, a snow blizzard since the beginning of March, really, and we've got no idea when the snow melts. The key is protecting against future losses, consumer losses. And we heard that in huge size from these banks. Yeah, billions and billions of dollars have been set aside by these banks. In the case of J.P. Morgan, they've they've built up their reserves by $6.8 billion. Uh, this, by the way, is a forward-looking number uh, compared to all the other uh, backward-looking numbers in these earnings reports. That's to cover future credit losses, and most of that is concentrated in the consumer division, uh, especially credit cards. So this really shows that this is the kind of crisis that, that, that we don't have to wait for it to trickle down to regular people, to consumers. It, it, it already is. They are expecting people not to be able to pay back loans and uh, and credit card payment. Same goes for uh, for Wells Fargo. They've set aside, they've built up their reserves by 3.1 billion. And I think the question for the markets, the question for investors, and frankly, everyone who's watching the, the course of the economy over this crisis, is is that going to be enough? Uh, that JP Morgan, interestingly, uh, on the call just now said that their, their assumptions that are built into that reserve build of 6.8 billion, uh, they are assuming a 25% drop in US GDP and unemployment rising over 10%. They are including in that assumption the effect of their forbearance programs uh, for consumers, things like waiving certain fees, extending deadlines for payments and things like that. And they are including government stimulus. But they say since they closed the books on this quarter just two weeks ago, their economist forecasts have darkened. So I think that shows you that A, they are probably going to have to build up reserves more in the second quarter, and B, how fast this situation is changing and how difficult it is for companies, even the likes of JP Morgan, the biggest US bank by assets, to, to really figure out how to, how to deal with this and, and how much money to set aside. 
Yeah, I mean, the estimates from analysts on this were astonishing between one and a half billion dollars and 20 billion dollars. So everyone was just guessing at what the damage could be here and what the bank was going to say. One of the other areas, and we were just discussing it with Greg Vallier there, the PPP, the Paycheck Protection Programme. What do these banks have to say about this? Because our understanding is they're writing loans, they're making loans. The holdup is with the Small Business Administration. Do we get any clarity today? We're still waiting for more clarity on that, Julia. The, the, the calls are still ongoing, waiting to hear. This is certainly something that investors are going to be watching uh, very closely because the banks have a difficult balancing act. They have to maintain uh, their liquidity ratios, their capital positions. They are at pains, by the way, today, both of them, to stress that they are very well capitalised, that, that they've got strong balance sheets, even in the face of this crisis. This isn't 2008. This isn't a crisis in, in sort of bank uh, security and safety. Uh, but I think, you know, these, these loan programmes and their role in dispersing that is something that's going to play into that delicate balancing act. So clearly that, in addition to, to the programs that the banks themselves are offering, those, those delays in payments, waiving fees, forbearance programs, that will, will certainly be something that, that, uh, that investors and analysts are watching. It all plays into the question of, uh, of credit quality going forward. Yeah, credit, 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 for sure. Claire Sebastian, thank you so much for that analysis there. Now, the International Monetary Fund warns that we're on the precipice of the worst recession since the 1930s. It says global growth will shrink by some 3% in 2020, and that's their best-case scenario. The fund warned worse outcomes are, quote, possible, maybe even likely. John Defteris joins us now. I have to say, with the, uh, the International Monetary Fund, they do have a habit of revising their findings and revising them again, John. So you have to be uh, a bit cautious about these numbers, but whichever way you look at them, they're pretty devastating. Yes, they are, Julia. A pretty dire reading because there's not one corner of the world that won't be touched by the coronavirus in terms of the overall numbers. And I think the downside risk here, two fronts on the emerging markets, because many are just coming into the front line of the uh, coronavirus uh, strike, uh, minus China, of course, which is at the front end of this. Number two, that we've seen the developed economies of the world pull out all their gunpowder and use it. So there's not much left in the reserve here for the developing world. Uh, the top line numbers you suggest a contraction of 3%. They're saying there's more risk on the downside. But how about the shift from January, Julia? Uh, that was 3.3% uh, on the upside. Uh, the United States, the worst since 1946, negative 5.9%. And they're saying that could be uh, worse going forward. And as emerging markets said, I can't avoid what we see here in the second largest economy in the world, and that is China. The top line number for the emerging markets, negative 1%. China, the worst growth since 1976, and very paltry growth for India at 1.9%. Uh, it's interesting to me that if you stripped out China because of the size of that mix into the emerging markets, Julia, uh, the drop in the developing world would be a negative 2.2%. And I have not forgot about Europe. How about the export-dependent economies of Europe, like Germany? Steady growth all the time, slow growth, but the engine for growth? How about a negative 7% for Germany? And uh, the UK also facing Brexit uh, in time ahead, but right now in the fire of the coronavirus a negative six and a half percent. I can't find any positive uh, pieces of news to point on this uh, from the IMF at this stage. 
I mean, this is when you're talking about growth levels like that in China, I'm just trying to imagine what that equates to in terms of unemployment risk, social tensions, for example, even in a country like India. And as much as we talk about the, the problems this is creating for developed market economies, for developing nations that can't respond with the kind of cash firepower that we have in the West, I mean, this goes back to the, the conversations we've been discussing about the need for debt write-downs, forgiveness, at the very least. Well, you know what, Julie, I think we're having an impact in terms of that narrative because that's starting to happen right now. Uh, the International Monetary Fund was suggesting the advice to the developing world, pivot as fast as you can to healthcare spending and stimulate where you can. So they singled out Indonesia, South Africa and China, which has $3 trillion of reserves for moving quickly on that front. But there is no silver bullet. That, that is the big challenge right now. I wanted to bring up those that are... Uh, overly dependent on commodities, Julia. We've been talking about oil. How about the lack of demand for the grains? So you have Brazil, Mexico, Russia with drops of five to six percent, even more. So you live by the sword, die by the sword. If you're overly dependent on commodities, we know the outlook for oil uh, for 2020 right now. So again, there's no easy way out, but I think the debt relief at the G20 meeting that's gonna be convened again by Saudi Arabia on Wednesday will be coming. I saw that the Asian Development Bank tripled its lending and support for countries as a result of this conversation. Who's gonna step up for the developing world? It's happening, not as fast as we would like to have seen, uh, but it is, the wheels are moving. Uh, in the right direction. Let's put it that way. Yeah, they're just slow-moving wheels. We need to get some acceleration on them. John Defteris, thank you so much for that update there. All right, we're going to take a break mm -hmm. here on First Move. But still to come, the U.S. president says the World Health Organization, quote, really blew it on coronavirus. We discuss with the man in charge of the WHO's Global Alert Network. And coronavirus cyber attacks as hackers target hospitals and healthcare workers. Microsoft is working on protecting those on our front lines. We'll hear more after this. Welcome back to First Move live from New York. Futures are still putting higher. In Wall Street this morning, U.S. banking giants J.P. Morgan and Wells Fargo reported their first quarter results. J.P. Morgan's earnings were its weakest, in fact, since the financial crisis. They set aside almost $7 billion to cover potential loan losses. Wells Fargo, which also missed profit estimates, is setting aside a greater than expected $4 billion in loan provisions. That said, shares of both companies are solidly higher in pre-market trading. Analysts were certainly expecting higher provisions. So taking this news, I think, is a good sign here. Now, nations such as Italy, Austria and Spain are embarking on a phased reopening of their economies, while the debate intensifies, of course, on how to do that in the United States. Some believe we should learn lessons from those who've managed the health crisis effectively elsewhere in the world, places such as Hong Kong, Taiwan and Singapore. Dr. Dale Fisher runs the World Health Organization's Global Outbreak Alert and Response Network. He's also a professor at the National University of Singapore. So fantastic to have you on the show. The key takeaway for me from everything that you discuss in various different regions is liberal testing, strict tracing and isolation measures. Is that the key? 
Uh, thanks, Julia. Yeah, they're the, they're the fundamentals of any outbreak response, actually. They're not targeted here. We would do the same things in, in Ebola or, or, or any other sorts of outbreaks. So, so it's important to identify the cases early and, and with, with testing freely available, isolating those cases, and then all the contacts around those cases to, to place those people in, in strict quarantine so that then you break that chain of transmission. Is that what was going on in China too? Because I know you were one of the first to go in and, and see what was happening in Wuhan. And we were all mm -hmm. watching what was happening with the temporary beds being created and assuming these were people on ventilators. But you're saying these were just people who tested positive. They were simply being kept away from everyone else. Yeah, that's right. They, they had uh, three different tiers of, of, of hospitals identified. And and, and because we know that about 80% of the people with COVID-19 actually have mild disease, then the, the hospitals that you're referring to that were built in 10 days and all the makeshift hospitals in the sporting arenas and things, they were actually really there as, if you like, quarantine facilities, still providing medical care, of course, but, and, and looking out for people that might deteriorate. But uh, no, anyone that needed serious care uh, was, was then shifted to one of their they're more, uh, more established hospitals. They also have thousands of people, I believe, even just Wuhan, working on tracing. It's something that you've also seen in Singapore. I've, I've heard of people getting text messages on their phones to find out precisely where they are at any given point to make sure that they're isolating. So, yeah, Wuhan created 50,000 beds to isolate their cases. Uh, South Korea, during their, uh, the peak of their outbreak uh, a month ago, created uh, 4,000 dormitory beds in about 20 different sites to, to house these people. Uh, Singapore's now got a lot of uh, community isolation facilities where people might start in hospital but then end up in a, in a sort of a, a hotel or, or, or other facility where we're now moving into our expo centre and lots of, uh, of the mild cases with a little bit of medical attention. Um, uh, 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 there. Um, yeah, Wuhan had uh, about 8,000, 9,000 uh, contact traces. Um, Singapore, it's been a very intense effort because, uh, and you're right, when I came back from China, I was one of those people in quarantine and I got one of those messages. Uh, it was strangely reassuring, actually. It said, you know, click, click on, this, on this link as a geolocator and uh, and I got a message straight back saying thank you for your cooperation and uh, I was of course at home. And thank you for your cooperation on that too. Based on what you've seen and personally experienced in Singapore and I appreciate and there will be people watching going this is a far smaller country than the United States. Is the United States in any way capable of phased reopening without seeing community spread picking up again without these kind of measures in place in significant size? Well, you know what they say, Julia, if you don't change anything and you expect the outcome to be different, then, then it won't be, will it? It's uh, history is just going to repeat itself. So, so, you know, while much of America and, and other countries around the world are, are shut down, um, you know, I believe there's, there's three things to do. Shut, shutdowns definitely stop transmission. There's no doubt about that. If you stop people interacting, then the virus can't jump from person to person. So, so no one should celebrate that a, that a shutdown works because it does. Uh, it's just got all the negative benefits for the economy and, uh, and sort of social infrastructure. 
The second thing that a lockdown will do is because the transmission stop, then over the subsequent weeks, uh, maybe two or three months, the health system can recover. So, so the beds will be emptied up, the ventilators will become free one way or the other. Um, but the third thing that's most important that, that mustn't be underrated is building up these these essential public health interventions. These are the, the when this comes back, because I don't believe it's likely to be eradicated. So when it comes back, do you have the capacity for for isolating your cases, for testing every everybody that needs to be tested, for, for doing the contact tracing? And have you got the laws in place to ensure that the quarantining works? And I think the public's appetite for isolation of cases and quarantining may not have been there if you'd have done this in, in February. Um, but I think now that people can see the consequences, the, the, the economic impact that this virus can have, I think people are, are, are generally a bit more inclined to, to part with a little bit of their, their freedom and privacy during this period. Yeah, I agree with you. We have to be ready to uh, give that up, quite frankly, to protect ourselves and others. Um, Dr. Fisher, I do want to ask you about some of the criticisms of the World Health Organization, the information that they gave, the timing of that information, the work that was done in communicating with China and what China was seeing and perhaps what information they're filtered out. Are there things that the World Health Organization could have done better here and do you think China restricted information to the detriment of the rest of the world? Well, you know, I, I was there in February and I haven't seen anything, uh, any difference between what happened in China and what happened in the rest of the world. Um, in, in that report that we put out when we came back at, towards the end of February, uh, we described that this disease had the... the the potential for sort of major or catastrophic um, health, social and economic impact. And, and the subsequent comment was, but we, we don't believe the world has the capacity or the mindset to deal with it. And as I, I remember as in our report, when we put those words down, I remember thinking, yeah, I think this is true. And sadly, that's what we're finding. I hope now the world has capacity and mindset to deal with it because it can be dealt with, but it, it's really not easy. And if you think you can just open up, um, it's not going to work. I don't believe the WHO could have done much more. Um, it's certainly not their role to, to police countries, to go into countries and say, hey, you need to, to do more. Um, even in, uh, even when I was in West Africa, you know, during the Ebola outbreak, we, we, we didn't go into Ministry of Health and say, get out of the way, we're taking over. It was mm. sort of, you know, no one knows your country better than you. You understand the capacities, the potential, the, the vulnerabilities, and we're here to help. We're here to support. In fact, the WHO would lose all its, all its, um, capacity to to help if it started policing people and to be allowed people. in yeah very quickly uh, it, could china have so, told the world sooner i think all the studies suggest that you know it was the end of november or early december right. that this uh, this virus emerged i think i first heard about it on december 31st so you know compared to sars you know this is you know very fast and, and anyone that's ever managed an outbreak you know knows that there's a lot of confusion chaos you have to validate things 
I think to get it out in, in a month and to get a test out, you know, in the second week of January was incredible, to be honest. Dr. Dale Fisher, so thank you for your work and uh, we appreciate you joining us on the show. Stay in touch and stay well. Thank you. All right, the market opens next. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. As you can see, U.S. stocks are up and running and in the green this Tuesday, the first day of U.S. earnings season. We're seeing uh, encouraging signs on the data front as well as far as the coronavirus outbreak is concerned. And we've had banking giants JP Morgan and Wells Fargo reporting this morning as well. They kicked us off in terms of earnings season. They missed expectations by a pretty wide margin as anticipated. I have to say predictions were all over the place and they set aside billions of dollars of money for provisions against loans that might go bad at some point in the future. It's a lot of guesswork going on in terms of the economic impact of the virus outbreak and the stay-at-home orders that we have in place across the United States. In the meantime, Johnson & Johnson earnings came in better than expected. The pharmaceutical firm boosting its dividend by 6%, but they did cut their 2020 guidance. We also saw brewing giant Anheuser-Busch InBev halving their dividend too. Now, in the meantime, Tesla shares have been on a pretty solid drive, rising today for a seventh straight session on solid Q1 delivery numbers. Tesla shares up more than 65% year to date. So within the broader changes that we've seen, individual stories are playing out here as well. Now, to manage the economic fallout from the virus here in the United States, the government approved a $350 billion program for small businesses. The aim to help cover payroll costs and other expenses like rent and mortgage interest. However, technical glitches and red tape means a lot of that cash has yet to get into the hands of small businesses. So what edge do recently added fintech players like PayPal, Square and Intuit have? Well, fintech industry representative Brian Peters, who's the executive director of Financial Innovation Now, joins us to explain. Brian, great to have you with us. Talk to me about the lending capacity of some of these fintech players and who they provide money for. What kind of businesses? Hi, Julia. Thanks for having us. It's great to be here. Uh, these companies have, uh, just in the last several years, uh, actually uh, dispersed uh, quite a bit of money to small businesses. And I would say it's truly the smallest businesses. Some of this data is, is remarkable. So PayPal has done uh, about $15 billion in loans. Square has done over $5 billion in loans. And, and these loans are going to uh, very, very small businesses. Some of the loans are as low as $500. Uh, they get up to about $200,000. The average size loan is, is about eight to $10,000. So these are truly small businesses. And, and pre-COVID-19, these are working capital loans. They're to help uh, stock inventory, uh, to help make repairs, those kinds of things. Interestingly, uh, PayPal loans, the data shows that those loans are, are filling gaps in the country that have been uh, left by banks uh, since the 2008 financial crisis. In the case of Square's loans, 56% of those loans are going to women-owned businesses versus 18% for traditional lenders. And Square loans are going to 37% minority-owned businesses. Wow. Sorry, 37% of their loans are going to minority-owned businesses uh, compared to 25% for traditional lenders. So we're really filling gaps. And I think this is a big part of the reason policymakers appropriately decided to include uh, fintech companies in the solution to the challenge facing the country right now. 
It's interesting for me. I mean, these are these size of loans, at least, are not going to be of interest to some of the larger lenders in the country. I think that's clear. They're not going to make money in terms of the scale on these loans, but also it cuts to the heart of what the Democrats are pushing for, and that's less inequality in terms of how the cash gets out there and who ultimately this cash goes to. The problem here for me is that you still have to get approval for these loans to get the cash out to people from the Small Business Administration, and that's been the, the overwhelming block blockage in the system. Is that right? That's right. I think there are some significant limitations with the throughput of the Small Business Administration, the SBA. Uh, sometimes it feels a little bit like there's so much demand out there that we're trying to uh, drain a lake through a garden hose. And that's tough. There's a kind of a single point of entry. And the system uh, was designed to handle a traditional underwriting process, uh, kind of a manual, uh, uh, manually intensive process. And so even though uh, companies like the ones I represent, an Intuit, a Square, a PayPal, have, have effectively built uh, maglev high-speed trains. We're somewhat reverse engineering those systems uh, into more of a kind of a steam engine approach. And then uh, along with everybody else, we're running through the same train station. Uh, that's my tortured analogy for it, uh, but it's not without challenges. Um, these companies are committed to making it work, though, and, and we're working overtime, uh, putting in a lot of hours burning the midnight oil to make it happen. Yeah, I mean, I feel like the train is a steam engine, quite frankly. We're in the uh, relative dark ages in technology terms. Brian, is there a way to circumvent the Small Business Association? Does that conversation need to be had, whether it's some of the larger lenders or for, for the fintech players, especially if we want to get this money out to people as soon as possible and to protect jobs, um, we yeah. need to bypass some of the infrastructure holdups that are being seen? Well, I think we're all working on the SBA program, and the Paycheck Protection Program is a, a laudable policy. It's designed to promote payroll and, and keeping people in their jobs. Um, that's a good thing, and I think we're committed to that. Uh, in addition, really what we've been seeking is, is sort of an all-of-the-above approach. As of this morning or late last night, uh, 880,000 applications had been made to the Small Business Administration, totaling uh, over $200 billion in loans. The program only has $350 billion, so it's going to run out soon. Uh, Congress is likely, once they get through uh, uh, some negotiations, they're likely to plus that up. Uh, but, but even then, I think we would like to see, like I said, an all-of-the-above approach and perhaps look at some additional support uh, from the Federal Reserve uh, and Treasury uh, to help make sure that, that we can take advantage of every system that's out there to um, kind of push support out into the capillaries of the economy, so to speak, these truly small businesses that yes. may not necessarily be served by the traditional finance system. Yeah, this can't be the only lending program that allows forgiveness for paywalls if you keep your employees on board that's out there. We spoke to a former head of the Small Business Association yesterday, Karen Mills. She suggested Ooh. that even in a best case scenario, 20 percent of small businesses in this country, so we're potentially talking six million small businesses, could fail as a result of what we're going through. Does that sound reasonable to you? It absolutely sounds reasonable. Most businesses only have two to three weeks of working capital. And so under the current circumstances, they're completely shut down. And if it's 6 million businesses or maybe 10 million small businesses, um, this is a significant source of employment for the country. Half of the country's employees work for small businesses. So if you kind of uh, 
get rid of those opportunities for those employees, we're going to have some uh, very difficult uh, uh, kind of downward cyclical pressure in the economy that's going to be tough to overcome. I think Karen um, is is wonderful. She's been excellent in her examination of the changing uh, landscape in in finance uh, and particularly how technology companies can help serve those small businesses. But um, this this is a, a significant challenge, and and I think that it's it's an emergency. You know, these small businesses need help now. Yeah, I agree. And we need to protect jobs as well. Brian Peters, great to have you with us. Executive Director of Financial Innovation Now, sir. Stay safe and uh, thank you for chatting to us this morning. Thank you, Julia. Thank you. All right, we're going to take a break. After this, though, a virus of a different kind is infecting healthcare workers' computer systems. We'll look at the rise in cyber attacks and what Microsoft is doing to help. That's after this. Welcome back to First Move. Microsoft says it's increasingly concerned about cyber attacks aimed at those on the front lines of the coronavirus battle, including hospital computer systems in Paris, Spain and Thailand and in the United States. As a result, test results and critical guidance are being delayed. Tom Burt is Corporate Vice President for Customer Security and Trust at Microsoft, and he joins us now. Tom, great to have you with us. This is incredibly worrying. It's not just about health medical services, the World Health Organization itself has been targeted. Just explain what you're seeing. Well, at Microsoft, we are seeing a, a wide range of activity and we're closely monitoring the 8 trillion signals we get every day for indications of nation states that are attacking healthcare or human rights organizations. And what we're seeing is consistent with what you've seen reported in the press. Um, there are attacks, both cyber criminal attacks, um, trying to extort money, but also nation states who are infiltrating these organizations to gather information or potentially to do some damage. And so we wanted to take steps to help protect our healthcare institutions and human rights organizations from these attacks. That's why we've offered our free account guard service, which is a threat notification service to these organizations. I want to ask you about what specifically you're providing to, to, to some of these healthcare services and, and companies that are being targeted here. But what do you mean when you say nation states? Who specifically is targeting healthcare services around the world? Can we be specific? Well, we um, have typically seen the same kinds, the same countries who are involved in nation state activity in the cyber realm um, and talked about that on other occasions. It's, it's Russia, China, North Korea and Iran are the principal countries who engage in nation state conduct. In this particular instance, we haven't established a pattern enough that we want to identify any particular nation as being involved in these attacks, but we've seen enough to give us concern. And especially as our healthcare providers begin to work hard on um, on treatments for COVID-19 and on vaccination, we wanna make sure that that information is protected and not disrupted. Absolutely, and is the effort here being made to disrupt care for individuals? Because I mentioned in the introduction there that it actually was in certain cases impacting the availability of test results, the timing perhaps of test results. Are these attempts based on what you're seeing to deliberately delay impact, negatively impact healthcare being provided in these countries? 
Well, we're certainly seeing cyber criminals do that by using ransomware to tie up the data at a healthcare right. provider and then extort the provider for money. And we've seen in the past, not that long ago, in 2017, when North Korea launched the WannaCry attack that targeted the national health systems in the um, UK, we saw that there was an effort there to actually disrupt the provision of healthcare. We haven't seen anything that egregious yet, but we wanted to provide this service to healthcare organizations and to human rights organizations now to help them defend against those attacks should they come. Okay, so explain what the Account Guard threat notification system is and how you want healthcare workers that are then using this to react. So the service we closely monitor the activity of nation state organizations using all of the signals that come into the Microsoft from the Microsoft environment. And we watch for activity by those nation states. And when we see um, an account guard account under attack or compromise, then we notify you um, that you are under attack so that you can take steps to clean up your system or to defend against that attack. And one of the things that's unique about Account Guard is that if you are an institution who has signed up for Account Guard, you can also include in that threat monitoring the personal accounts of affiliates who opt in. So your CEO, your members of the board, the workers or volunteers who work with you, any of those affiliates can also opt in and we will monitor those accounts as well because we see that nation states um, often start their attacks by trying to attack the personal accounts of someone involved in an organization and then to move from there into the organization's network. And just to be clear, you're giving this away free to, to healthcare providers. Yes, this, that's right. This is a free service for the healthcare providers um, and the, the human rights and humanitarian organizations. Um, you know, on our website is all, are all the details for who's eligible, but it's very easy to go to the Microsoft Account Guard website and uh, see how you are eligible and how to sign up. You know, one of the things that I think the whole world in, at various degrees are dealing with is working from home to some degree, being in touch from home, even if for essential workers you're in the workplace too. And based on what you just said there about the initial entry point tending to be of a more personal nature here, is that also complicating the service that you're providing, the protections in place, but also allowing perhaps more of these cyber attacks to be happening at this given moment in time? It's absolutely true that during this time of crisis with so many uh, people working from home, that that um, expands the scope of the security problem that an organization faces because they now have workers working from home. For those of us who still are fortunate to have jobs and to still continue to be working, many of us, like all of us from Microsoft, are working from home. And that does expand the the scope of the, the um, security environment that has to be protected. And that's one of the reasons we think that this free account guard service is going to be valuable to the healthcare and human rights organizations is because they can monitor not just their corporate accounts, but also the personal accounts of their people um, that opt into the service. You know, Tom, you're one of our many guests that we see coming from their home. I assume it's your home. I just wondered what your view is on what protections you want to see your company have in place before you'll be confident enough to go back into the workplace. 
Would you be willing to, to share your views on this with us? Because I think this is a discussion that's going to be happening more and more in this country as we continue the conversation on what getting back to work in an official environment actually looks like. Well, I certainly look forward to the opportunity to get back to work um, and meet in person with my colleagues. But that's going to be, I think, a very challenging process that yeah. um, that companies, that states, that government organizations, the healthcare industry, professionals who really know um, that the, the science and the data are going to have to work together to think about how can we gradually go back to work in the way that's, that's the safest. And at Microsoft, um, I know the executives who are working on that issue are involved every single day in talking to other companies, to um, officials in the healthcare industry, as well as to government officials about what are the, what are the steps that we need to take um, to work our way back into being able to go to the office and do that in a way that is safe and ensures that all the sacrifices that many people around the country, around the world have already made, that those sacrifices are not in vain. So we don't want to rush back so quickly that we just um, reinvigorate the, the virus and then have to take these, these extreme steps all over again. So we're at a point now where I think everyone's thinking about that very seriously. Um, and I'm going to follow the, the guidance of the company as we work our way back to getting back to the office. Well said, sir. There's no rush here. Safety first and make the sacrifice that we've already seen worth it. Tom Burt, great to have you with us. Corporate Vice President at Customer Security and Trust at Microsoft. Stay well, sir. Thanks. Thank you. All right, after the break, heroes on the front line and on the front porch. Two tails that will raise a smile and maybe a glass too. I'll explain next. Welcome back to First Move. We honour our healthcare workers on a daily basis, as we should. But how about a thank you just for staying at home? This is 93-year-old Olive Veronese from Pittsburgh, whose sign appealing for more beer went viral. I was on my last, uh, last uh, 12 cans. Anyway, I have a beer every night. Molson Coors responded with a delivery of 150 beers. And Olive wasted no time in cracking open the first one on her porch, as you can see. It's very nice. We raise a toast to Olive and millions like her, stuck at home but doing the right thing. And, of course, to our healthcare workers too. We'll see you tomorrow. Stay safe. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 